0: If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy. In the Black Pew Bibles, that's on uh, page 991. So we began looking at this letter from Paul uh, to this young pastor named Timothy uh, last week. And Paul had written this letter to Timothy to instruct him, as an elder of the church in Ephesus, to prevent certain people from teaching false doctrine. Uh, and specifically, the passage that we, uh, that we looked at last week, uh, in verse 5, the aim of all of what Paul is telling Timothy to do here, the aim of that is love. Love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then in verses 6 and 7, Paul says that, uh, that those people that Timothy is supposed to be opposing their false teaching have swerved away from these things, and they are desiring to be teachers of the law. Uh, so before we, uh, before we look at the passage for this week, um, I want to talk a little bit about the law. So when we say, when Paul says the law, what he's talking about is the, the Mosaic covenant that was given in Exodus, the promises and the requirements that God put around his relationship with the nation of Israel. And so in the day that Paul was writing this, there were still a large number of uh, of Jews who were following this law, including Paul himself up till the time of his conversion. Uh, and perhaps more notably, Jesus. You may have heard of him. Um And so this law dictated how Israel was supposed to relate to God and how they were supposed to relate to one another. Uh, There were moral laws, uh, the Ten Commandments being the core of that moral law. Uh, There were civil laws that governed how Israel was supposed to work as a country, how it it was supposed to be governed. Uh, And there were ceremonial laws that, uh, that dictated certain feasts, dictated ritual cleanliness, uh, and dictated a, a system of sacrifices. And and really, this was an element of grace that was built into the law. So when you messed up, when you failed, there was atonement, there was a price that you could pay to make that sin right available by making particular sacrifices in a particular way. And so when these sacrifices were made, for uh, while these sacrifices were made, in atonement to pay that price for the sins of the people, those sacrifices lacked the ability to change people's hearts. Uh, It says in Hebrews 10, verse 1, uh, that the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, but it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. So while the law made a way for man to make atonement for their sin, that sacrificial system lacked the ability to sanctify them, to change their hearts. Uh, and so when paul that's what Paul is talking about when he says the law. But there's another phrase that he uses here uh, that, that has a specific meaning, the teachers of the law. So at the time of Paul and at the time of Christ, uh, these were uh, generally Pharisees. And these this was a group of Jews who taught that one could be righteous, one could be viewed as acceptable in front of God if they kept the law. And by keeping the external requirements of the law, they believed that they would be counted as holy. They believed that their compliance with the law essentially made them extra special in front of God. And so there was this constant struggle in the early church um, with these people who wanted to continue to teach external compliance with the law over and above, in addition to the grace of the gospel. And part of that was because these people had built their entire lives for generations around the idea that the better they did at following these rules... The better a person, that made them. Uh, It also had something to do with the lack of prestige in the Christian life. If you haven't noticed, um, there's not really levels of Christian. You know, you don't graduate from one level to the next. you, You never attain the Christian equivalent of an Eagle Scout, right? When we follow Christ, we follow Humility. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 10, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. So the greatest in the Christian faith is the person who most fully understands their smallness. And the best is the one who exhibits the most humility. But that goes counter to our hearts. That goes counter to our flesh, right? We want to be able to be the best. We want to be able to understand that we're better than other people, even if other people are sometimes better than us. But there's no room for that within the Christian faith. So let's jump in here. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving away from these, uh, these being uh, love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, by swerving away from these have wandered away into vain discussion, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul is making some implications about these false teachers. He is saying that, yes, they are teaching the law. They are using the law, but they are not using the law correctly. They are misusing it. They are misteaching it because they don't really understand it. So for us, to use the law lawfully is to use it in accordance with its intended purpose. So we have these three categories of law, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. And when you read that in the Old Testament, you look at it and that would be really difficult to keep, right? to keep it all straight in your head, to be able to make the sacrifices at the right time. But that was what they were called to do to keep fellowship with God and to remain in community with those around them. They needed to keep the whole law. And a failure to keep the law exposed what was most important. So there's a a story back in uh, 1 Samuel 14, um, about the army of Israel being out in the battlefield, and they returned from battle, and they were absolutely famished. And there are reasons for that that are beyond the purview. But anyway, um, and they came back into the camp, and they just started killing and eating whatever animals happened to be around. Now, this violated the the ceremonial law that they had been given. They were told that. If they wanted to to eat meat, they needed to kill the animal in a particular way and and drain the blood out of it. But they failed to do that in this this case. And in doing so, they exposed what was most important to them. By failing to follow the law, they exposed that really their empty bellies were their gods. Right? Right? The laws around eating meat in a particular way exposed their lack of willingness to seek after God first and their needs second. So we see that thread all the way through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The law exposed to people their own insufficiency and their own inability to live in compliance with the law. And it was only through faith that this insufficiency, that this failure to live up to the law was ever overcome. In the Old Testament, it was faith in God to accept the sacrifices that they made, the goats and the bulls and the wheat. It was faith in God to accept their sacrifices as atonement for their sin, as payment for their sin. Whereas in the New Testament, it was faith in God to accept the sacrifice of Christ as atonement, as payment for our sins. And so the root issue then with these teachers of the law is that they misused the law. They took the rules that God had given and they used it to justify depending on their own righteousness, their own ability to do what the law said rather than depending on grace through faith in God. They used the law to puff themselves up and say, look, look at me, look how good I am at this. God must think I'm pretty special because I can keep the law better than you can. And so they were no longer depending on God in faith, but they were depending on themselves and their own strength. And so the law reveals to us, in contrast to God's holiness, our unholiness, and in contrast to God's distinctness from the world, our own conformity to it. The law exposes sin and it shows us our need for grace and mercy in order for us to be reconciled to God. Joshua pointed this out to Israel uh, in, in Joshua 24. You may have heard uh, part of the speech. He, he said to them, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he said to them, you will not be able to keep these commands because God is holy and you're messed up. Let's paraphrase. And the people said, no, 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 we're going to be able to do it. And Joshua said, no, you won't be able to do it. And they said, we promise we're going to be able to keep the law. What's the book of the Bible right after Joshua? Joshua Judges, right? You ever read any of the book of Judges? There's some messed up stuff in there. They did a really bad job of keeping the law, right? They sinned, and they were brought low because of their sin. The judges and the prophets called the people to repentance using the law. And the people repent, and God would deliver them. And so the law served to expose their sin and to reveal in them their need for repentance and the continual mercy and grace of the Lord. So when we get into the New Testament, when we get into the time after Christ, we see a different uh, situation. So the civil laws were no longer necessary. They didn't need the laws to govern themselves because they were under the law of the Roman Empire. And the ceremonial laws were fulfilled once and for all by the blood of Christ. It says in Hebrews 10, uh, starting in verse 11, that every priest, uh, talking, talking about uh, the, the Old Testament law, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So by Christ's offering, one time, we have all been made clean in the eyes of the law once and for all. But with regards to the moral law, Christ not just confirmed the Old Testament moral law, but He expanded it in some ways. If you remember back in um, back in Matthew five, He said, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them." And then He goes on to talk and say, "You have heard it said." And when He says that, He means in the law. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And he goes on to say the same thing about adultery and divorce and oaths and retaliation. And so the moral law was not just confirmed in Christ, but it was expanded. Not just to include our outward actions, but our inward thoughts and attitudes. And we see that the moral law was not... Following the moral law was not a prerequisite for participation in the kingdom. But it was a result of participating in the kingdom. So the requirements of the law were met on our behalf by Christ. And so as we are shaped and molded into models of him, into little Christs, we should naturally begin to reflect his qualities and his compliance with the law. That's what we're told in, in towards the end of Romans uh, 8, that we as believers were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so our outward conformance with the law Our ability to follow the law is a result of our inward conformance to Christ, to the one who followed the law. So our our salvation isn't dependent on our ability to follow the law, but rather our salvation is demonstrated, it's proved by our internal reshaping, our internal conformance to Christ our Savior. And out of that, we will naturally begin to comply with the law as a natural result of that. So Camp Namaka just wrapped up. And uh, if you've never been involved with it, there are certain uh, kitchen safety requirements that come into play. I've never really worked food service, so I have this all just kind of secondhand. Um, But there's a difference, right, between the cook and the dishwasher. The cook is a professional. They, they know what they're doing, they know the rules, they have it all under control. The dishwasher is a high school kid who just wants to not be hassled and and get a job done so that they can go do whatever it is the dishwashers do the rest of the day. Um, and so the dishwasher does essentially what they are told. They do what the law requires because they don't want to lose their job, they don't want to get hassled, and so if the law requires that you've got you know, a rinsing sink and a disinfection and with this temperature and that temperature and so much bleach, they do that. Not because they particularly care about the requirements, but because that's, that's what they need to do to keep their jobs. They are complying with what the law requires. But the cook understands the rules, the law, a little bit differently, Right? They want a higher goal. They just don't want to comply with the rules, but they want something larger. They want food service that doesn't make anybody sick, right? And so the cook, by pursuing that higher goal, will naturally conform to the requirements of the law. They will naturally do the things that the law requires because they are seeking that Thing that the law is pointing them to. Safe food. And so as we come to better understand what the end goal is, that conformance with Christ, we better understand and more gladly and more naturally comply with the regulations, with the law that describe to us who He is. And so then we look to the law for indications of where we have the opportunity to grow, where we are falling short, and where we are most in need of God's grace. So if that's a lawful use of the law, what does an unlawful use of it look like? Uh, So one of the things that we've already talked about is self-righteousness. This was the error of the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's your list. You need to do these 631 things continually all the way through your life, and you'll be okay with God. Or we see it differently a little bit today. You know, I didn't sin too bad. I didn't sin in too big of a way. And really, I'm, I'm a lot better off than this person is, and so I'm, I'm all right here. Uh, this was the error that existed in the church in Galatia that Paul wrote the book of Galatians to. And he said in Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree." So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so there is no room for us to boast in our own righteousness, as we don't depend on our righteousness, but we depend on Christ's righteousness. Sort of the opposite issue to self-righteousness. I'm going to use a $15 word, and I apologize for it. Anti-nomianism. Anti meaning against, nomos meaning law. So this is the idea that as Christians we have no need to pay any attention at all to the law. Just disregard it. I'm saved by the grace of God. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus and so I can do whatever it is that I want with my life. Anti-nomianism. But what did it say in Matthew 5? Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And earlier in Matthew 3, 8, he told the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so the law was not erased, but its purpose finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, who commands us to repent of the sins that the law reveals to us. And through our faith in him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And to not desire to be conformed to Christ in our behavior is is indicative. It's an indicator that we have not truly repented. And then, because we today are fantastic at finding new and different ways to uh, mess up our lives, we tend to blend these two things, right? We have an outward self-righteousness and then an inward antinomianism, which is really the ultimate arrangement in complacency. It doesn't get a lot more complacent than that. Because we try to convince those around us, we try to deceive those people around us into thinking that we are good people, that we have it all figured out, that we have it all together. And then we also deceive ourselves in trying to convince ourselves that our sin internally is no big deal. That God's grace will cover it and I can just keep on going, keep, go, keep on living my life the way that I want. I can just keep on sinning and God's grace will cover it. So outward self-righteousness. inward, Inwardly, we're avoiding the law. But in Galatians 6, 7, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. And then in Numbers 32, be sure that your sin will find you out. So there will come a day. There will come a day when your willful deception of others and your willful deception of yourself will be found out. Because God is not mocked. Your sin will find you out. So how then do we use the law today? Lawfully. How do, what do we do with the law today? It says in Psalm 1, that the righteous man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He thinks upon it day and night. And so as we meditate on it, we need to let it reveal to us the, the places in our lives where we have failed to repent, where we have failed to turn away from our sin and turn instead to, to God, not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. And so one of the things that Paul does for us here is he provides us a list a list of behaviors that are contrary to God's law, so that we might meditate on it, that we might evaluate our own lives against the standard of the law. So as we go down through this, I'm going to go slowly, and I'm going to give us time to think on these things, to meditate on them, and take your life and hold it up against the measure that the law gives us. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So how have you lived as if you were beyond and above God's laws? The law was laid down for the ungodly and sinners. How have you lived in rebellion against God? Following your own rule rather than the rule of King Jesus. The law was laid down for the unholy and profane. How have you treated the holy things of God too lightly? Have you ignored His Word? Have you been cold to His church? Have you treated his glorious grace as cheap and easy? The law was laid down for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Not just strike and not just murder, but as we saw in Matthew 5, that extends to a failure to honor. Are there family relationships? parents, brothers and sisters, wives, husbands, children? Are there relationships where you are falling short of the standard that God has set in His Word? The law was laid down for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Our sexuality is designed by God to work within the context of covenant marriage and in that context alone. So our our culture would tell us that sex is so fundamental to who we are that we should seek to be satisfied, whatever it takes. Satisfied outside of marriage, satisfied in adultery, and in infidelity, in pornography, in an entire range of ways. But doing so elevates sex to the status of an idol. It is, a, it is something that has been created by God that we are worshiping in the place of him. So have you elevated sex to the point where it is an idol in your life, where it is now the driving force behind your choices? The law was laid down for enslavers, liars, perjurers. Those who would lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead in life are exposing a basic lack of trust in God to provide for their needs, and to direct their steps. Twisting the truth, spinning the facts, bending the rules, these are all actions that show us our lack of trust in God. And so in your dealings with other people, have you been completely honest and forthcoming, trusting God for the outcome rather than your own cunning? See, these are all places in our lives. These are patterns and actions where we are failing to conform to the holy standard of God, where our actions are an offense. They are an act of rebellion against our Creator. And in every other religion that I know of, anyway, The command that follows such a list of sins and shortcomings is to try harder. Do more. Be better. Be stronger. And that creates this unbearable burden. And it exhausts those who try to bear it and crushes those who fail to. And it says, if only you weren't so weak, you would have done better. You wouldn't have failed. But Paul gives these commands in a context. He says the law was laid down in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. See, explicit in the Christian faith is the understanding that we are not enough. We are not righteous. We are not good enough. We cannot try hard enough. Romans 3, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so for the Christian, the command that comes from on high is not to try harder. But rather in in Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says to the crowd that's assembled there, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Christ does not call us to bear the unbearable weight of our own sin to be weighed down with the burden of our guilt and our shame, But but instead he tells us to give him our burdens and instead carry the light burden that he places on us. Because for the Christian, the trying and the striving and the toiling was done for us wholly and completely by Jesus Christ. Dying in our place on that cross. And so the call is not to try harder, but instead the call is to repent and to place our trust in the midst of our successes and in the midst of our failures. In the work that he did to take his yoke upon us, to follow him in joy and in love and in remembrance of his death to save us in hope of the promise that his resurrection gives us. So if you carry the weight, if you carry the burden of sin, past or present, the Bible tells us that when we come to God in a spirit of repentance and a spirit of faith, he will cleanse us from the stain of our sins. He will make our hearts white as snow, no longer stained with the burden of our sin. And so we need each and every one of us to repent, to cry out to God, I'm sorry that I've worked out things. Cleanse me from my sin. And we need to place our trust, our worship, our hope. We need to place our entire beings and our entire lives in Him. Because repentance is not just the removal of sin. But it's the removal of sin and the replacement of Christ at the very center of who we are and what we hope for. Let's pray. Father, your word can cut like a knife. And it exposes things in us, Father, that we don't want to see about ourselves. But Father, it exposes those things and at the same time provides us with a way a way to not bear the burden of that sin and shame any longer, Father, but a way to be free, a way to be free. In you, Father.